Hello, I'm Rolf Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and today we are delighted to be speaking to Dr. Bing Hallam, a man who knows a thing or two about the great, the epic, the alchemically formative Zosimus of Panopolis. Not just Zosimus of Panopolis, but Zosimus of Panopolis in Arabic. Bink, thank you so much for returning to the Schwepp. Ah, thanks for having me back, Earl. It's really nice to be here. So, the Zos, we know now that he wrote in Greek down there in Egypt, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. a lot of his stuff only survives in Arabic. We have uh, a very complex, fascinating Arabic tradition, preserving Mm -hmm. some works of Zosimus of Panopolis, which we know are authentic because they still exist in Greek, others that we think are authentic based on criteria you've come up with, and we'll talk about that in a second, Um, Mm -hmm. and then others that we know are just certainly not authentic, but Zosimus has just become a name to conjure with, so you might attribute all manner of stuff to him in Arabic, and we have some of that stuff. We're going to set aside the, the fascinating but kind of hardcore textual questions, like how individual texts within the Zosimian Arabic corpus relate to their Greek, possible Greek originals, possible Syriac originals, all that sort of stuff for Mm -hmm. a member's episode, because that's the hardcore stuff that folk might not be so interested in. But what I'd like to talk to you about is, first of all, maybe a a general summary of the Arabic Zosimus that you've worked on, and then getting into what the Arabic Zosimus tells us about Zosimus that the Greek doesn't, the surviving Greek and and Syriac stuff doesn't. Totally. Okay. Um, so in really broad brush terms, because like you say, we can go into this in more detail uh, in another place. Broadly speaking, we've got three types of texts here in the in the Arabic Zosimus corpus. And I'm just going to look at the ones that seem to have a direct connection with the actual Greek material. So we've got letters, episodes, usually have, they've usually got a number attached to them. We've got a collection of texts that aren't epistles they're not addressed to Theosebia or or anybody else in in a sort of epistolary way which are collected under headings like thematic headings and this is called the sulfurs or yep. seems likely to be called the sulfurs and then we've got two dialogues we've got two dialogue texts it's Zosimus in dialogue with Theosebia on various alchemical topics so we've got Letters from Zosimus to Theosebia. We've got a collection of texts that's uh, probably extracts, seems likely to be extracts from his writing collected uh, under different themes. Like here's Zosimus talking about mercury and here's Zosimus talking about distillation of whatever, sulfur or something. And then you have the dialogues. So those seem to be the three main areas. And the dialogues, we don't have dialogues between Zosimus and Theosibia in, in Greek, right? So this is no someone, unless there are lost Greek dialogues, which probably isn't the case, this is the case of someone's taking text by Zosimus, um, where he says, Theosibia, you mentioned this. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you about it, blah, blah, blah. And just adding her as a character. So she says, totally, Zosimus, totally. And, what about this? And, and this says, was this. done in the Arabic tradition. Right. This was... This was people writing in Arabic, reworking, like remixing the Arabic translations of the epistles of Zosimus. Into a form Um, that's, I mean, speculatively, why do you think people wanted to put these into dialogue forms? Just nicer to read? 
I mean, the dialogue form already had popularity. It was already a popular form um, in Arabic, as it was in Greek, but not necessarily in the alchemical genre. Uh, also, for, maybe for for a didactic purpose to to make things easier to um, to memorize. This is particularly true of the shorter of the two dialogues, the Mustafa Sanna, the Tome of the Art, which um, is something like a catechism. It's sort of short questions and answers about about substances, about procedures, about um, main concept, alchemical concepts. It's the it's the student, the disciple, Theosebia, asking the master, the master telling her answers. So it seems like the sort of thing that a student could read through and just memorize questions and answers. Right. And you get this, I mean, you get this sort of thing quite often in, um, in, for example, Arabic medical literature in, um, you, you get this, this question and answer style. It's not necessarily a dialogue. Like it doesn't have, you know, one person says this and another person says that, but like, for example, uh, Hunayn ibn Ishaq, who incidentally is, a major translator of Greek and Syriac works into Arabic or and, and from Greek into Syriac. Um, and he, his name has even been mentioned um, by one of the one of the medieval sources on Arabic alchemical literature, Ibn Nadim, in his uh, 10th century Kitab al Fihrist, the book of the catalogue, he mentions uh, Hunayn Ibn Ishaq as one of the people who translated Greek alchemical works into Arabic. He was also a medical author. He was a physician and he wrote books for medical students. They were written in exactly this dialogue, not, well, it's not dialogue, it's a question and answer form. And it's like a cat, like a medical catechism for students. So the students memorize these the dialogue for question and answers. And then when they go for their medical examination and they're sitting in front of their physician master who's asking the questions they know the what questions are going to come and they know what answers are expected so i think it's this sort of thing that's going on this is a really interesting form this is not really relevant in any way but the the tst form in, in yeah Greek, yeah yeah uh, what is yeah. such a thing yeah it is this is actually in in late antique evidence particularly associated with the early pythagoreans now, whether this was actually something that Pythagoras himself engaged in or not, we don't know. But um, it certainly was seen in antiquity as being a typically Pythagorean mode of discourse, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a, a wonderful, I just have to put this in because I love it, uh, <laughs> in, in the collection of spurious Greek works of Plato, there's a work that no one's ever read called the Horoi, the, uh, the definitions. definitions. And it's, it's yeah. one of these. It's a, yeah. what is the world. What is a human being? And it gives a, a series of short, pithy answers mm -hmm. uh, put in the mouth of Plato. So that's some of the the kind of literary background of that form in in Greek. But uh, mm -hmm. and what, if this gets considered just didactic or doxal, doxographical, I'm not sure what what anyone makes of the pseudo Platonic definitions. I think hardly any work has been done on it since for about a hundred years because it's just seen as this not particularly important philosophical work from mm -hmm. antiquity. No mm -hmm. one can even date yeah, nothing's it. Yeah, really. and nothing's being argued, presumably, in these, these texts, isn't it? No. 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 It's just being laid out. Yeah. It, being these are the You're findings. schooled rather than... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these are the results rather than... It's not the process. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, well, it seems very similar. That, and also, the, the letters to Theosebia are rambling. So this might be Zosimus 
hiding the truth of his alchemical teachings in sort of as he rambles here and there, like you, you should be able to differentiate the, you know, the asides and the not so important material from, from the main thrust of his argument. Or maybe he's just not the most amazing writer and he's a bit all over the place. Or maybe the text has undergone so much uh, work by epitomizers and, and others that we can't really tell what the original form is. Right. Anyway, by the time you get to the Arabic material, that, that almost doesn't matter because what the way I look at it, what you've got in Arabic is what you've got. And then going forward from there, that's what sets the tradition. That's who Zosimus is. Zosimus is who you find in the manuscripts. It doesn't matter what was written by him or how the text uh, has been deformed and changed as it's been copied and recopied and epitomized. That's of interest to scholars. That's not necessarily of interest to your medieval readers of alchemical texts, they, they take it, I think, more or less as they, as they found it in the manuscripts. In other words, when, when we're looking at the history of alchemy as a whole, we, mm-hmm. we very much want to try as much as we can to reconstitute the original Greek Zosimus, right? But when we're looking at the history of medieval alchemy, we actually might be more interested in the Arabic Zosimus. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so on the one hand, it's like, looking at there's there's a, there's a philological and historical project to try to get back to the original figure out who wrote what when did they write it try to build up a chronology of alchemy as it was produced as as alchemical thinking was constructed and and formed on the other hand there's a tradition there's a reception of this writing and for that it's more interesting to just look at the manuscripts and see what's in there and, and see like, okay, this is what, how people encountered Zosimus in the Middle Ages. Yeah. I mean, and you, you get, the, it's not just about alchemy. This is, this is the same with, I mean, okay, I work in mostly in Arabic texts and, and sort of Greco-Arabic stuff. And you get all sorts of fascinating things like the, the famous Socrates of the barrel, you know, where you get Socrates and, and Diogenes the cynic kind of get mixed up and Socrates' name is stuck on uh, descriptions and writings about Diogenes. So everything that Diogenes did, living in a barrel, acting like a like a dog, that that becomes Socrates. But Tell, yet Socrates was Alexander also the Great, right? The, all this stuff. But yet Socrates is Plato's master, and Plato is is the great, the divine one, who was also pretty much the same as Aristotle in some ways. So you, you get this sort of mashup. Uh, which historically and chronologically doesn't make sense to our sort of brain that likes timelines and, and everything to be unmessy. But in terms of the tradition and how were these people encountered, how were these thinkers encountered and how were these traditions consumed in the past? Well, you've got to, you've got to look at the mashup version rather than the, than the, than the unpicked version. Yeah. Anyway, I think we've gone off t- tangent a little bit. Well, there. it's good. It's, it's good methodological stuff. Let's get back to Zos in Arabic. One thing you haven't mentioned specifically in your little quick roundup there is the Mus'haf As-Suwar, the Tome of Images, an mm-hmm. amazing work that you've done a lot of work on in your PhD work, which is a richly, richly illustrated. So on the one hand, there's a text running in Arabic, which is a dialogue between Theosebia and Zosimus. It's a little mm-hmm. bit confused, although it has chapter headings that seem very formulaic. It's actually yeah. seems to be a bit of a, a messed up text. But then accompanying mm. this text are these incredible images, these painted illustrations. 42 illustrations, often full page 
paintings, color, all sorts of strange characters. And it's a huge dialogue, almost 450 pages in the in the surviving manuscript. Now, this one is gorgeous. Listeners, please check the notes to this episode because we will show a few delicious samples from these illustrations. Now, mm. there's a few things here that are interesting to me coming off the back of our talk with Matteo Martelli. Mm. One is that in the the dream narratives of Zosimus Epinopoulos, oh, yeah. we seem to have the first time in surviving alchemical literature where you get this personification of substances and processes of the art mm-hmm. in the form of human beings that are being yeah. often tortured. And totally tortured. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and depending on dating, this might be our earliest, or at least it's a very early form of that in emblematic form, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's it's the earliest known by far. By a couple hundred years, probably. I mean, just going on the date of the manuscript, the date of the surviving manuscript, which we know is, we know that the text is much earlier. The manuscript is from 1270. And the, the earliest time we, we have these sort of allegorical, sort of emblematic images of, of uh, alchemical scenes meant to be understood as referring to alchemical processes and uh, substances undergoing various alchemical treatments appear in in Europe in the probably mid 15th century something like that so round about 200 years later let's talk about the dating of the Mushafasur you've been able to nail it down to some time no later than the late 10th century so conjecturing mid mid 10th century as a good mm-hmm. before the mid 10th century before the before mid 10th century but to do that you did some really interesting detective work, which brings in a bunch of other esoteric works uh, and writers into the the story. So how did you arrive at this dating? Uh, Well, it's already been pointed out by uh, Theodore Abt, for example, uh, that that passages from the Mushafasuar appear in uh, Arabic alchemical texts that were thought to have been been written around uh, the 10th century. Uh, for example, the Kitab al-Habib. And passages from the Musafasur also appear in the Latin Turba Philosophorum, which is believed to be a Latin translation of an Arabic text also produced in the 10th century. The problem is that, uh, well, two problems. One is that neither of these texts is very firmly dated. We don't know authors for these texts. We don't know exactly when they were, they were produced. And secondly, uh, an equally big problem is that the text of the Musafasur is a combination of other earlier material that's been reworked into a dialogue form. So there's the epistles of Zosimus in there, but then there's other material that's not the epistles of Zosimus that's going in and is being reworked. So it's hard to say when you have a small quotation of something from the Musafasur, is this somebody quoting the Musafasur? Or are they quoting one of the sources of the Musafasur? That's a bit tricky. On the other hand, we have the author uh, Maslama al-Qurtabi living in Spain in the 10th century. He traveled to the east and then went back to Spain. He died in Cordoba, in his native Cordoba, in uh, 964 AD. So he's a well-known person. He's well-dated. He's the author of the Gayat al-Hakim, 
uh, which your listeners will know perhaps as the Picatrix. Uh, so a very important the, work of, let's call it magic, magical technology. Yeah, it's, it's a sort middle, of Latin Middle grimoire, Ages. let's say, of, of astral magic, talisman making, all, uh, all sorts of amazing things. But the Rayat al-Hakim is book two in a, in a two-book series. And book one is the Rutbat al-Hakim. And the sub was the subject of the Rayat al-Hakim is talisman making and astral magic. The subject of the Rutbat al-Hakim is alchemy. And one of the texts that Maslam al-Qurtabi talks about in the Rutbat al-Hakim is the Mushaf al-Suwar. He calls it Zosimus's book. He doesn't call it by name, but we know that it is the, the Mushaf al-Suwar because not only does he quote it, but he actually describes the images. He describes the illustrations that are in it. So we know that he's not talking about the source text that was reused. He was talking about the dialogue version in which the, the illustrations had already been added. And he talks about the fact that Zosimus and Theosibia appear in the illustrations in the Mushaf Asur, but they're not just, you know, author portraits or, you know, pictures of these, these two alchemists. They're actually there as representations of alchemical substances or some sorts of elements within the alchemical work. And yeah. he even tells us that people in his time debated what they were representing in these images. Were they representing principles? Were they representing physical substances, actual ingredients that you could use in your alchemical work? Mm. Uh, were they showing two aspects of the same substance or were they showing two separate, separate substances, for example, mercury and sulfur? So we know that, that people were already engaged with, with these images. So we know for certain that the Mushaf Asur already existed with its illustrations by the time Maslam al-Qurtabi died in the in the mid tenth century. Great, that's a, that's brilliant work, and it also adumbrates of a very fascinating later medieval tradition in both Arabic and Latin of mm -hmm. both magic and alchemy that we will be getting to in the podcast when the time comes. <laughs> so nice one. This text is. Mm. Let, we should pause and contemplate this for a minute. This is our yeah. first known alchemical emblem book. Yeah, yeah, it is. Boom. I mean, I think that's, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. That's pretty big in itself. Um, the fact that it only survives in a single manuscript is, well, annoying. And I mean, difficult means we, we can't do much comparative work and we can't really say much about how the manuscript moved and or, you know, how the manuscripts moved and uh, what sort of influence they had. And it means that they haven't drawn as much attention as the as the European material, mm. because that stuff survives in many more manuscripts. There were some really, you know, manuscripts made for sort of high level patrons. So like beautifully, beautifully executed that ended up in Royal collections. And, and so they're, they're well known. Whereas this Arabic material, like this, this manuscript is in the Istanbul archeological museum library. It's not a huge library. It's not the top copper. It's not the Soleimaniya. It's not one of these, you know, manuscripts that belonged to libraries of sultans and, and, and things like that. So it's, it's not really well known. Mm. It does have an interesting history in itself, though. Go on, then. <laughs> I have to mention it, because, again, it, it's, it's like um, sort of more evocative and sort of 
much of anything. And as I say, it's just a single manuscript. But this manuscript was produced in Egypt in 1270. So it's Mamluk, Egypt. People want to make Sufi connections a lot. Oh, it's the Sufis. Yeah. You know, like oogly boogly stuff is happening. Weird stuff is happening. It's some alchemy. It's some magic. Oh, it's the Sufis. And normally I'd be like, no, we don't have any idea who was involved until you get some bloody names. But actually, we've got some names here and it's Sufis. <laughs> nice. Cool. I think it's kind of cool. So like bo- both the main manuscripts, like the Mushaf al-Suwar and the, the one with, that has the seven episodes in it and the Mushaf al-Sanna, the, the shorter dialogue, we know that both of them passed through Sufi hands early on in their, in their lives. So that's, that's interesting because I guess it tells us while in the Syriac tradition, a, a lot of the what got translated, or at least a lot of what happens to survive in Syriac translation, mm-hmm. is mostly technical stuff. And the, the Byzantine epitomizers seem also to have been aiming at extracting the, the technical, actionable practical alchemy from the whole Zosimian But not stuff only. Like I mean, because there's no, not other only. stuff. And don't forget that the Arabic materials, it, we only have it because of presumably Byzantine manuscripts. Right. You know, it's, it's unlikely that our Arabic texts were translated from Greek manuscripts that predate Byzantine times. I see that what we you're might That would be my feeling, anyway. Yeah. A, a little bit depends, though, on when the epitomizers were working, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But, but what's interesting about the... The fact that this book, this very esoteric, wonderful book, the Mushaf al-Suwar, mm. with its illustrations and stuff like that, would have been given as a part of the foundation of a, a library for a Sufi madrasa or a khanqa or whatever, like a Sufi community. It shows that yeah, in, in the Arabic dargah. tradition, the spiritual significance of alchemy is very much still there, right? Like Which, which it totally is in, in Zosimus's. Greek. So the pseudo-Democritus, our earliest known Greek alchemist, it, it's hard to see how that would be have much of a reading public outside of people really interested in what we nowadays would call physical processes, uh, sort of mm-hmm. stuff like that. But Zosimus has tons and tons of uh, spiritual dimensions to what he's doing, and that seems to carry over quite directly into mm-hmm. the Arabic stuff. Yeah, Your- definitely. He has both his own spiritual concerns that come out in drips and drabs throughout his work, and he has also a technical terminology that makes use of ideas of spirits and souls and all sorts of other things that could certainly be interpreted either physically or you know, spiritually to, to be either to do with physical alchemy transmutations of substances, but also be reimagined as some sort of internal working or um, some sort of things with a more general spiritual or theological importance. And yeah, like you said, this this Mushaf al-Sawar, the, the manuscript that we've got, the one manuscript that we've got of it, we know from seals that are on the, the title page and some inscriptions that... Um, in the 17th century, we know that it was in Egypt for a while, that it was produced in Egypt. In the 16th century, it was still in Egypt. By the 17th century, it's moved to Bursa in Turkey, modern Turkey, and it was given as part of the foundation collection to, as you said, a library of a madrasa that was attached 
to uh, a Sufi dargah or convent. And that this was actually the dargah of Niazi Misri, who was a, a Sufi sheikh of Tariqa himself. And he formed his own Tariqa, the Misri Tariqa, which is apparently a, a sort of confluence of the Naqshbandi, Qadiri, and uh, Khalwati Sufi orders. And that the, the person who gave it to the library, who endowed it, was actually the same person who built that the library. He hmm. built the madrasa. The story goes that he um, went to Niyazi Misri. He was a, a follower of his and said, um, he, he, this was quite a rich guy, obviously. He said, like, let me give some money towards the, towards the order. And Niyazi Misri said, no, no, you know, if you want to really do us a favor, we need a school. We need a madrasa and it needs a library build those things. That, that's much better. So he did that, and, and presumably he donated books for the library. And this is, this is one of them. I think it doesn't tell us anything specific, but it's very interesting that this is the kind of thing that in the 17th century people were, uh, would be able to access in these Sufi uh, convent libraries. Mm. So that's the, the Mus'haf Asura, very fascinating manuscript. And again, mm. listeners want to check out some of the images from that in the notes mm. to this episode. Now, since we're talking about the Arabic Zosimus, if you could give us a précis going forward mm. as to the sort of Nachleben of Zosimus in Arabic alchemy. This is going to be important because Arabic alchemy, to a large degree, is, let's say, the Arabic language is, is the most important transmitter for alchemy from the Greco-Roman world into everything that comes after. So mm -hmm. the importance of the Arabic Zosimus is, the, is relevant to the whole history of alchemy, really. Mm. So we're going ahead in our chronology. We're kind of shooting forward. But if you could make some, some kind of general statements as to the importance of Zosimus in the alchemical tradition going forward, that'd be really okay, good. Okay, so just yeah, looking at the manuscript tradition, just sticking that with that for a second. On the one hand, it looks like, oh, wait, wow, there are not so many of these manuscripts surviving. And a lot of them are quite early manuscripts as well. There are a few later ones, but for the, for the majority of, especially the things that seem like authentic or close to the authentic translations into Arabic from the Greek, these are early manuscripts, usually just one manuscript of each text. There's not huge evidence that, that these things were being copied widely and or that they were continuously being copied into later periods so that suggests oh maybe there isn't a huge readership or maybe there isn't sort of like for like for a lot of subjects actually a lot of the greco-arabic material the first translations of the greek material into arabic these often don't survive too well but what you get is people then rehashing it epitomizing it, systematizing, creating sort of, you know, presses, digest, digesting this material. And especially for this alchemical stuff, digestion is, is needed because, you know, especially Zosimus, like we were saying before, he's quite rambling when he writes. So to somebody just to get this stuff, systematize it, lay it out clear, it's going to very quickly make the original source text kind of redundant for people who want to just practice in the lab or, or get the real gist of this. They don't want to have to read like a million texts and go, God, what's going on? This is so fragmentary and weird. They want to digest. And so that's where you get Zosimus a lot. You get him in really starting with Arazi in the late 9th, early 10th century. He was using Zosimus amongst other Greco-Arabic alchemical translations and doing just that, digesting them and saying, 
basically using them as his proof that the alchemy that he lays out in his own writings is the actual alchemy of the ancients by extracting loads and loads of quotes and explaining what the quotes, the quotations mean um, to say, look, these ancients were talking about just what I'm talking about. And then in his own writings, he has much more succinct, straightforward, probably lab useful explanations of, of what you need to do to do these alchemical processes. And it seems like writings like his probably to a certain extent killed demand for the actual trans- translations, for the original Zosimus texts. Got it. Now that's thing. Abu Bakr al-Razi? Abu Bakr al-Razi. Whom yep. the podcast will be returning to when the time comes, mm-hmm. not to be confused with Fakhreddin al-Razi. Or um, loads of other people from the, the city of Rai. Right. So Razi just means he comes from Rai, which is uh, a place that was outside modern Tehran. So that didn't stop people from going back to the original text. So you get lots of other later Arabic writing alchemists who also use lots of quotations from Zosimus, sometimes lengthy quotations, and explain them and use them as illustrations of, of points that they're making. And if you, make a, if you collect all these quotations, there's not so much overlap between the quotations that are going around. So it doesn't seem to be the case that, say, a Tughra'i, a 12th century Saljuk period uh, alchemist living in Esfahan who wrote a bunch of texts on alchemy and and quotes Zosimus fairly frequently. It doesn't seem like he just had some Razi and was pulling the Zosimus quotes out of Razi. It seems likely that these alchemists did have access to the the Greco-Arabic text of of Zosimus's actual works. But yeah, basically the way that it was, the way that they were used is they were chopped up into little pieces pulled out and stuck into your alchemical text to show that that what you're doing is the same as what the ancients were doing or to give like a little pithy maxim or something like that or a little bit of, of Zosimus or, some, or Democritus or somebody else to say, oh, look, this is how the ancients would have described it and now I'm going to comment on that or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it. Um, but that's usually how he's, uh, how he's dealt with. Then you get some, not so much commentary material, but there is actually an Arabic epitome, a muhtasar, a, sh- a shortened version of the Book of Keys, the Mafatiyah Sama, the, the Keys of the Art. Mm. Um, that, that seems to be the only time where you get somebody not just inserting little quotations from Zosimus, but actually dealing with a whole text and trying to, trying to explain what was going on in, in the whole text. And then you get another really interesting thing with and this is um, in relation to the Mus'haf al-Suwar, the, the illustrated dialogue, you get an author called Abu Qasim al-Iraqi, uh, a Simawi, who was probably living in Egypt, probably in the, in the 13th century, so around about the same time and place that the, the single surviving manuscript of the Mus'haf al-Suwar uh, comes from, who wrote a book called the Akhalim al-Sabah, the, the seven, the book of the seven climbs, in which he extracts illustrations from previous alchemical texts and comments on them and explains what's going on. Again, not so much commentary, more like he's giving some description of alchemical themes and topics, and then he'll chuck a picture in and say, "Oh, this is you know, this is related 
to that. He doesn't really uh, then go through the image and sort of explain uh, what's going on there, the symbolism of it exactly. But in there, he's got, I think, two or maybe three images taken directly from the Mustafa Sawar. One of them is a partial quotation. It's not the whole image from the Mustafa Sawar, but he's he's engaging with that text in a in a sort of uh, pictorial way. But he doesn't he doesn't extract the text at all. That's so interesting. So our earliest alchemical emblem book, if I can say that, which I don't know, historians of alchemy might find that an improper way of speaking, but we've already kind of said what we mean by that, had a life not only as a text, but also as just the illustrations, like skip the the confusing text and just get to the the cool pictures. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be what uh, Abu Qasim al-Raqi was was doing in that anyway. he, Mm. He was... He was just looking at the pictorial side of things. He was just skipping the text, pulling out the pictures. Now, there's a couple of things I, I wanted to talk to you about that come out of the Arabic Zosimus that maybe we wouldn't know enough about if we just had the Greek Greco-Syriac tradition. Yeah. And one of them is, you know, what does the Arabic and maybe the Syriac material tell us about Zosimus's relationships with Theosebea and Maria the Jewess and Nelos and his and the, the sort of scene, the alchemical scene? Does Does it help us... Does it cast any light on this earlier scene? Absolutely. This, this for me was, and still is, the, one of the most interesting things about reading Zosimos is thinking, okay, well, this guy's an alchemist. He's interested in all this uh, physical theory and lab practice and things like that. But the sort of background, the legendary uh, background, the mythological background that he gives to his alchemical practice is super interesting. The cast of characters that he engages with, those who the ancient, likely to be legendary sages like Hermes and others, um, and, and possibly real people like, like Maria the Jewess, who you mentioned, are super interesting. The people he's in contact with, Theosebia and the, the circle that she's in, are super interesting. And then, of course, his worldview, whether you know informed by alchemy or, or informing his alchemy or however you want to look at it, is also super interesting. And he drops little fascinating nuggets all over the place, like really tantalizing little little nuggets in his Greek writings that alludes to this stuff. And he does the same in the Syriac, and he absolutely does the same in the Arabic. And even when you collect all this stuff up and put it together, because these are never the main topics of what he's writing about, yes. it's really hard to... He's, he's not going, now I'm going to set out my worldview, or now I'm going to like tell you about all the people in my life and what they're up to and what their interrelations are. So you kind of have to read between the lines and put things together. But when you put it all together, it's super, super fascinating. And a lot of it did have... Well, some of it anyway. Well, no, a lot of it, let's say, did have resonances down through the ages in, in, in various ways, in alchemical circles and, and outside. So, for example, in the Greek Zosimus material, he talks, for example, about Adam, and particularly the Adam of flesh, the fleshy Adam, the fleshy Adam being our body and the the matter that makes us up, as opposed to our inner person, who he calls force, man, or light. So some sort of inner man of light, perhaps, but we don't know, so the, the spiritual side of us. And in relation to this, he talks about um, our, um, so in the letter Omega and in other Greek texts, he talks about our relationship with fate 
and fate both as um, something that's you know difficult and problematic for us and that affects our our fleshy Adam, our bodies, but not our inner man of light, not our spiritual self, which is non-physical and therefore you know not, it's it's not natural in the, that it's not composed of of the four natures, the four elements, and therefore it's untouched by the astral influence that was believed during the Hellenistic period to be the sort of agents of, of fate and the specific agents of fate, like who is it that, that brings us the, what, what the planets for ordain for us or, or make happen or cause for us or make as our fates. And these are the astral demons who in Arabic become the Rohaniyat. Or weirdly, actually, who appear not so often as rohaniyat, spiritual beings or spirits, planetary spirits, that sort of thing, in the Arabic Zosmos material, but show up as shayatin, satans, devils. Right. So going from the original Greek daimon, yeah. as we go into late antiquity, there's two, at least two main approaches to daimon. The one is the traditional one, where a daimon is just a, a like a, be, a being not unlike a god, but of a lesser mm-hmm. stature, roughly speaking. And then there's demons, which we see showing yeah. up in early Christian works already. But also in, you know, the, the, the idea that there are evil daimones is already is appearing in late antiquity among uh, polytheists as well. Mm-hmm. And so... And it's interesting. And Zosimus has, he believes that we have a, a personal daimon. Yep. The, the Hoidios daimon. And that it's this personal daimon that is, is the sort of conduit through which we get our astral fate, astrally determined fate. Hmm. Um, and it seems that he's saying that this, this personal daimon can change and be affected by, by, by the changes of the arrangements of the heavens. So on the one hand, this, this is all in the Greek material still, on the one hand, he says that, you know, fate is something to be dealt with and, Avoiding it seems mostly we avoid it by by denying our fleshy Adam by not being so bodily obsessed and be more interested in our our inner light person, our inner man. But on the other hand, fate actually has a lot to teach us. He, he warns the Asibia that we shouldn't be we, we need to heed the the teachings of fate. We shouldn't be like those who are not interested in, in what fate has to teach us. But what it has to teach us, it seems, is that it works through the body, that it works through matter. Yeah. Um, and that what, how does it work? It works through from the planets, through demons, into our matter. And, and it doesn't really touch our inner true selves. He's full of these dichotomies. Like, fate, it has teachings, but it, it can ensnare you if you're and then again, it, it ensnares you if you're stuck with the flesh. But if you are focusing on the non-flesh part of you, non-material part of you, then you you can learn from fate, and you can learn physical lessons. You can learn about how fate works. And then he has demons, demons that are like you say, they don't all have to be evil. There's your idios daimon, who's not always evil. Everybody's got one, and that's not really a problem. The problem is becoming too much reliant upon these demons. Right. Because there are other demons that try to trick you and try to feed off you. He warns Theosebia that they're um, 
they're looking for sacrifices they that nourish them but really they're trying to be nourished by your soul they're going to feed off you and he's always warning theosebia not to hang around with a guy called nilos and his group of other people like tafnuthia the virgin and others um i think these are the only two you get by name and the reason being that these guys do an alchemy that's based on demons on propitiating demons and reading between the lines it seems like the way that these guys are propitiating demons is by using astrologically determined moments kairoi to begin their alchemical practices so they're doing katarkic astrology they're working out astrologically when they should start their whatever alchemical process they're doing so that they can get the best results and that seems like so far so good why wouldn't you do that exactly unless yeah. you think that the way that these propitious moments the way that they are propitious the way they are good is because forces are coming down from the planets but these forces are daimones and daimones have an agenda of their own right they want your sacrifices so they want you to go oh yeah this is the right moment to start my alchemical work i will just burn this incense and maybe do a blood sacrifice and say some prayers magical names or whatever it is get this demon to come down and help out with this well that's great except that the demons will get a bit addicted to your sacrifices and this is exactly what he wants the asibias happened that they have uh, revealed presumably to nilos or to people that have taught nilos they have revealed a certain type of tincture a certain type of transformation of transmutation that's based on these kairoi the kairakai katabafai <laughs> whatever <I don't> <laughs> the uh, the opportune moment related uh, or bound deep uh, tinctures changes or deep yeah. tinctures yeah so he says that these are demonic and they're really no good but that these time these time based tinctures are actually there are natural ones as well there are natural and true ones that we should all use so he's again he's saying like okay there's this dichotomy that it is important to know the right times to do things right, it is yeah. important to know you know what to do when but don't do it because the, the demons coming down with yeah. the sacrifices and everything because the demons are going to try to trick you into thinking that the only way your alchemy is ever going to work is if you do the right prayers and say do the right sacrifices because that's what they want and they will help you until they can't because the stars are you know planets aren't aligned right and then everything will fall apart because you haven't really understood the true and natural alchemical methods which is what Zosimus is trying to teach so he's got always always got this dichotomy going on it's and, really uh, it, it, sorry to interrupt but it's it's yeah, really yeah. interesting because there's so many later ideas that appear in Western esoteric history that seem to be adumbrated here, but not in the way we're familiar mm -hmm. with. So I think of like mm -hmm. the kind of classical high medieval formulation of natural magic versus demonic magic that we get in the Christian world, but that this isn't that, right? Because mm -hmm. everything that's demonic magic mm -hmm. just kind of could be natural as well. If, if Zosimus is doing it, it's natural, but if they're doing it, it's demonic. And, and then if astral fate is administered by by planetary demons 
mean, mm-hmm. are they daimones or are they demons? If they're demons, then how can you be saying that fate is actually a, a realm that we can learn from and, and you know, sort of has this positive side? If the whole thing is a world of dark archons that we're familiar with from mm-hmm. uh, the more pessimistic Gnostic texts, then surely you spurn the whole thing. But no, Zosimus says, no, we study it and we learn the secrets of it. And so Zosimian alchemy, it seems to me, is not fitting neatly into any of these later uh, dichotomies. It has its own set of dichotomies, and they're very hard to pin down. No, definitely. In, in, in one of his most amazing works called the, the Final Account, or The Final Reckoning, or The Final... Uh, it's hard to say what this... The Teleotire Apoche, what the title of this work means. He gives all sorts of really interesting advice. Like, for example, he tells Theosebia that you need to offer sacrifices to the demons, to the daimones. But not offerings, nor the sacrifices that nourish or entice them, but rather the sacrifices that repel and destroy them. And he says that these are ones that uh, a certain Mambres taught to Solomon, the king of Jerusalem. Um, so he definitely wants you to work with these daimons, but he wants you to do it in a way that understands that they're there, that your alchemy, your chemical processes are not reliant upon them, that you have a deeper understanding of the natures in the way that the four elements combine and recombine and, and what is the nature of the physical world, that your understanding of that, of, of creation, is deep enough that you don't need to have demons coming in. It's, it's not just that you're sacrificing to demons and saying the right words and doing things at the right time. You actually know something deeper, and but you do need to deal with the demons. You just need to make those sorts of sacrifices and say those sort of things that will just get rid of them. Mm. So... What is this stuff that gets rid of demons? I'd love to know. Yeah. And weirdly, the answer seems to come up in the Arabic Zosimus quite a lot, because he often talks about nine letters that, he says, they're like a talisman, or they act like a talisman. And they seem to be used for banishing demons. Hmm. And they seem to be important for your alchemical work you use these nine letters but what on earth is that it's hard to say he doesn't ever mention these nine letters um, as far as i've found in the greek he does in the syriac material and he does in the arabic material and other alchemists in the greek alchemical collections do talk about these nine letters and they certainly i I was going to say seem to but they certainly go back to a riddle of nine letters from the Sibylline Oracles, from the first book of the Sibylline Oracles. So these are, these are a collection of Greek oracular texts, probably written by, at least the first sort of stratum of these texts, are written by Jewish authors. Over this, there is uh, Christian material overlaid in the Greek. And there's a section in the first uh, Sibylline Oracles where God is talking to Noah before the flood and gives him a riddle, a, a riddle, the answer of which is the divine name, is the name of God. And it says, you know, I am nine letters, and I have this many syllables, and there are this many, da, 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 and, the, and the numerical total of me is this number. So it's a sort of numerical letter riddling 
question, the answer of which is the name of God. I mean, we don't know what language is this name in. Is it, yeah. So these numerical equivalents and the number of letters and number of syllables, is this Hebrew? Is this Aramaic? Is this Greek. Uh, Coptic? Is it Greek? Is it, you know, what is it? It's certainly not Arabic. So it gets used in alchemi Greek alchemical texts. It's brought in as something to do with alchemy, but we're not really sure what. And this is later alchemical authors who are using it in the century or so after Sosimus, this uh, Olympiodorus uses it, Stephanos uses it. So these, these earlier um, Byzant Byzantine, late Antique, early Byzantine authors. But we can't find it in Zosimus. But in the Arabic material, it's all over the place. And in the Syriac, it's there once or twice. In the Mus'haf al-Suwar, it's there almost the whole riddle with the number of syllables and the, how many letters are there and what's the numerical equivalent. But it's in his Arabic letters that seem likely to be authentic, but we don't have them in Greek, where he tells us what we do with this, that these nine letters are to be used like a talisman, but they're like a talisman for repelling demons. So I, I find this super fascinating because it's weirdly, once you kind of see that it's there, once you get it in the Arabic and go, okay, I see what this is about, then you start finding it all over the place. And there are little like sideways references to it all over the place. And it stays in the alchemical tradition down to you know, Paracelsus mentions it, Athanasius Kircher mentions it, you know, all sorts of people mention it, people who undoubtedly knew it was there in the Sibylline oracles and knew that it was meant to be a name of God, but, but they also see it in the alchemical material and they, they interpret it in all sorts of weird ways. Keen listeners may want to go back and listen to episode 110 of the podcast, where we talk specifically about the Sibylline oracles with Matthew Noyar, and uh, that will give a much more detailed excursus on this super complex composite text, which mm. now we're adding further layers of complex interpretation to in the alchemical tradition. And speaking of Jewish Christian texts with complex receptions, yeah. there's some interesting Enochian or Enochic material in Zosimus. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely connections between Zosimus and uh, the Book of Watchers from First Enoch. So again, course. listeners will want to go check out episode 51 of the podcast where we introduce Enoch in the Book of Watchers. And it's not just the Book of, Book of Watchers, it's, it's other, let's say, Jewish uh, or early Christian apocalyptic literature mm. in this sort of Enochic vein, this sort of weird revelatory, you know, going up in either fallen angels type stuff, interpreting angels or, or um, ascent sort of narrative stuff. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of crossover with Zosimus. And it, again, it's like, sometimes it's quite straightforward, but then once you start looking for it, it's kind of all over the place. And, and it's there in this same sort of di dichotomy deal that I'm talking about before, that, that Zosimus is, a lot of his writing to Theosebia, or a little bits of his writing to Theosebia are definitely polemic against Nilos and his group. Um, so that, I think, is where you get the dichotomy coming in. You get Zosimus, the goody, and Nilos, the baddie. They're both dealing with alchemy from different perspectives, basically the right one and the wrong one, the good one and the bad one. That's the interesting thing then. Like, so what is the good one? And what is that? We know a little bit about the bad one from Zosimus' point of view. We don't know so much about the good one, except little things he tells us about that he believes in an inner man and an outer man, the Adam and the false, that he doesn't like uh, the Manichaean, using a similar sort of riddle to, doesn't say the name of Mani, but still tells us how many letters there are and how many syllables and how many diphthongs and things like that. So it does that same sort of weird riddling. 
He even tells us that there are people amongst Nilos' group who work with talismans. He tells us this in the, in the Arabic material. But he wants you to work with talismans too. He just wants you to work with a good talisman. Right. That's God's name. It's like a talisman. It's not exactly a talisman. Not the bad ones that, that Nilos works on. And then so already in the Greek material, he talks about fallen angels and a, angels that, that, that lie with the daughters of man, basically. Angels that have sex with women in exchange for teaching them all sorts of arts. Yeah. Um, so the sort of like sciences, dark, or, dark culture hero narrative of the Book of Watchers. Yeah. So they, but in, in specific, he tells that they explain metallurgy, they explain gem making, they explain yeah. dyeing and cosmetics and stuff like that. Weirdly, a lot of the things that alchemists would get up to. Exactly. You know, yeah. The metallurgy, the, the making things change color, the tincturing, all that stuff is there. He tells uh, Theosebia that all these things are not good for the soul, which is kind of weird as well, because he's an alchemist who's telling us all about how to do these things. But yeah. there always seems to be this narrative in there, at least when he's talking to Theosebia, and it might be that he tailors his message to his audience, that he wants to give her like spiritual advice as well as just you know how to do the alchemy, that there's this conflict between the inner and the outer and we are de we're dealing with with the natures and physicality because we want to understand it better, not because we want to get ensnared by it. We understand that our soul, our inner man, is ensnared within flesh, and that's not where we want to be. But that's all right. You still have to understand the flesh, and you still have to understand the world before you can extract yourself. He has this whole like fallen angel narrative, and and then there's a Byzantine author writing, I think, in the century, a guy called Georgios Sinkelos, who wrote the Ecloga Chronographica, sort of Christian universal history. Um, and when he talks about the myth of the fallen angels and the bringing of the, of the technologies to humans through angels wanting to have sex with humans, he references Zosimus directly as, as a good source on this topic. So we know it's not just that Zosimus... Um, tells a similar story. Even Christians who had access to the, the Book of Enoch, you know, were going, oh, this is a guy who tells that story as well. And actually, Christian Bull uh, wrote a really interesting article that deals with this, where he, he looks at this whole Fallen Angels uh, Book of Watchers theme as it's portrayed by Zosimus and traces it back to some texts that Zosimus talks about in the Greek material, some books that he calls the Physica, the physics or the physical books or something like that, then the books of natures or something like that, uh, which he attributes to Hermes hmm. um, and says were hermetic texts. It sounds like he's saying that the hermet these hermetic texts have this story of the fallen angels in it, which is pretty interesting in itself. And then Christian Bull pulls this out in of various other Greek alchemical texts and, and other similar texts. Anyway, he takes this whole thing further and seems... And once, once you read across the Syriac, the Arabic, and the Greek, it seems to me what he's trying to do is use the story of the fallen angels and Enoch as the person to whom this story is revealed and who reveals it to deal with this same dichotomy that he's always banging on about with Theosebia, that Nilos is bad and that he's good. He seems to be setting himself up as a sort of Enoch revealer character and Nilos as basically enthralled to the, to the fallen angels. 
um, because I think in the, the, the fallen angel story that the fallen angels come to earth, they're buried, they beget, they beget giants with the, the daughters of man, the giants then die and their spirits roam around the earth as, as these de- demonic beings. Yeah. And I think he's trying to hint that this is the sort of baddies that, that Milos is, is dealing with. Of course, they're also planetary spirits and there's a whole bunch of, of weird concepts going on at once. But it seems like he's, what he's trying to do is go, look how evil Nilos is. He's consorting with those very demons that corrupted the earth, yeah. you know, that, that made everything terrible. And he goes further. So he has in, like you said, in the, in the Greek material, he has these dream visions where he goes to sleep and he, you know, he's thinking about the work and then he goes to sleep and he sees you know, somebody get dismembered or boiled alive or, you know, all these sort of things. And he, he has really similar visions in the Arabic material, both in the epistles and in, in the reworkings in the Musafa Suwar. For example, he sees a, a man with a head of gold and a body that's white like salt, I think it is. And then that person is killed and, and his head's cut off and they take his golden head and they do this with the other. And, and he's got to take the head and like bury it in some tomb or something. Because otherwise, if he doesn't, evil sorcerers are going to come and corrupt the world, which is a phrase you get in the Book of Watches, in, yeah. in, in Vrestinok, in, in the Greek, that, that this is going to be this thorough corruption of the, of the world. They're going to come and get the head. The sorcerers, uh, practitioners of seher, illicit magic, are going to come and get this head, whatever it represents, and use it to corrupt the world. And then, still in the dream, an angel appears to him. And it's not just any angel, it's the angel of peace. And the angel of peace comes and explains to him what he's seeing. And says, oh, you look, you, you look very distressed. And he says, oh my gosh, yeah, I am. And this is happening and that's happening. And and his dream has been really weird. This, this dead body turns into like a sort of wolf type thing. It's like a sort of werewolf type situation. And he's, it's all very menacing and horrible. And, and uh, th- yeah, this angel comes and kind of consoles him, but not really consoles him, more just ex- interprets the dream. And interestingly, he's called Malak salam the angel of peace, which seems like a bit of like, oh, okay, that's a nice name, a bit random. But actually... If you look up Angel of Peace, they're not random at all. They're very rarely occurring in Christian literature or Jewish literature, but they do appear in the Book of Enoch. This Angel of Peace appears as an interpreting angel. So it doesn't seem at all random that when Zosimus has an angel appear to him, he's the Angel of Peace. So he seems like he's positioning himself as an Enoch or Mm. as, as a revelator of some sort. And setting himself up in opposition to Nilos. The other thing you get in the Arabic literature, which is, which is pretty interesting, is talking about who Theosebia is to him uh, and who Maria is to him. Because in the Greek material, you don't really get a feeling for who Theosebia is to him, other than that she is probably of a high social status and possibly could be... She was a, she's, he speaks to her as a sort of disciple, someone who needs advice and guidance spiritual as well as practical. But he also addresses her very respectfully uh, in terms that makes it sound like she's of a high social standing, possibly up some sort of patron type character. Yeah. In the Arabic material, especially in these numbered epistles that seem, we don't have any Greek text for them, so we don't know that they're real, but they, there's enough very authentic looking material that seems like it's real. He talks about Maria, Maria, the copt, they call her here, as her mother. 
Hmm. I mean, in what sense? I don't know. Like, actually her mother? Or, like, a sort of matriarch of her lineage? Or in that she was Jewish, maybe? Or just an earlier female alchemist, so her mother in that sort of sense, like in the art or something. But he actually makes it sound as though he has been charged by uh, Maria, the mother of Theosebia, with the task of completing her education, her alchemical education. Like that Theosebia is Maria's daughter, and I don't know, Maria's either dead or for whatever reason, Zosimus has been given the job for, of a guy, okay, now give her the final teachings, and that that's what he's doing. Right. But yeah, I just, I find it all super fascinating, because it, it, it's like tantalizing glimpses at this, this very weird thought world, like this same guy who can, you know, one minute he's telling you quite dry, but also really confused and, and weird explanations of, of what you should do with stills and furnaces. And the next minute he's warning about your soul. And the next minute he's revealing something and bringing in all this Enochic tradition. And then another minute he's telling you about the mysteries of Mithras. And then another minute he's telling you about something he saw in the temple of Serapis. And the next minute he's telling you that the Manichaeans are terrible. And the next minute he's telling you that Jesus is going to come and free your inner man. And it's like, wow, this guy is plugged into all sorts of crazy stuff. But it's never his main point. So you always just get these little like drips and drop. That beautifully confuses our, our picture of, of this guy's thought. Oh, man, if, if it's not confusing, it's nothing. I mean, from, from the manuscripts to the translations to the worldview, theological side, like what? Some people want to say this guy, Sosimus, is a temple priest. Some people want to say he's a Gnostic, some sort of Gnostic Christian. Some people want to say he was, I don't know, none of the above, that he's just a gold maker. He's, the religious stuff is not really important. It's, that's not his thing. You know, what the heck's going on? Down to, yeah, all these weird myths and legends that are in there, to the reception. It's really, oh, not to mention the actual alchemy the lab-based processes <laughs> that are going on what the hell are they most of the time it's like wow is it confusing well bank thank you so much for coming on the show up again and uh, introducing us to the incredible standing contradictions the standing <laughs> that exist within the zosimian corpus i'm and always happy to confuse <laughs> some of the delights of the arabic tradition and uh, like all of that stuff stay esoteric easy <laughs>